Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. When you look at America, what do you see right now? You see a culture, I think, um, changing. You see a, a, a culture that has been in its, in its history uh, a Christian nation. But you see it moving away from that. You see groups of people who become downright hostile to Christianity. You see things changing, do you not? When you look at this, do you see uh, the ending of a season of harvest? Or do you see the beginning of an increased season of harvest? We're going we're to look at two, two people today. We're going we're to follow and, and look and compare. I'm, I'm really hesitant to do this, but the Lord gave it to me, so here we go. We're going to look at Saul of Tarsus, and we're going to look at Peter. What you're going to see is two different styles of ministry. As they, and, 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 I, and I'm not saying one is better than another, but for different needs they are. And I think, the, I think the book of Acts has shown us something powerful. I think the, the book of Acts is showing us how to reach our culture. How to go into the America that's in front of us and be highly fruitful. I'm not, this is an exaggeration. You'll see what I mean. You ready for it? All right, here we go. We're going to Acts chapter 9, looking at Saul and Peter. Since its founding, the United States has been predominantly a Christian culture. Not that everybody was a good Christian. They weren't. But by and large, people did believe that Jesus is the Savior and the Bible is God's word. Obeying his word was another matter. There was a consensus. We generally agreed on what we should or should not be doing. When opinions are polled today, it seems there still is a majority who say they believe these things, though more and more qualifiers are being added. Yet in spite of what people may claim to believe, the United States as a culture is progressively rejecting its historical faith. And a growing number of people are becoming hostile to that faith. What may have worked in the past to bring lost sheep back into the fold doesn't work with secular skeptics. With these, old-fashioned evangelism often produces mockery or verbal abuse. The question many believers are asking today is, has America become hard ground? Are the days of soul winning here drawing to an end? When you read books about revivals in the past, you'll, if, you, if, you, if you look at it, you'll, you'll see certain trends. You'll see that there were, there were preachers who came and they would preach the gospel. They'd often, they'd often deal with sin. Uh, they would deal with hell. And people would come and they would repent. Uh, one, one guy had a mourner's bench, uh, meaning people would come forward and they'd mourn and, and grieve. And, and he, would, he would say, take them deeper, God, take them lower. And, 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 and the spirit of the Lord of conviction would come over people and they would grieve. And it'd be, it, it's a truly a work of God. But when, when, they, when you have these revivals spring out, whether it's in Britain or, or, or the United States or wherever it was, people would uh, start singing hymns. Uh, they would go back to church. They, would, they, would, they, they, they knew what they were supposed to do. They were, they were lost sheep. They were backslidden. They were coming back to the religion they'd been raised in. 
Because they'd gone to church as children. Even in their schools, they were taught the Bible. They were taught the Ten Commandments. They were taught these things. These were the accepted normal morals of the nation. And this was the God of the nation. And Jesus was his son and savior. And that was what was thought. So I may be a, a drunkard and a smuggler, but I should be a good Christian. And that's how I thought. So even though I'm not one, or I've reacted to things, that's what people should do. That's not here today. That's, that, things are moving now. Uh, you, you convert somebody, they're not going to know a hymn from, you know, barn wall. So it, you, you don't have the same kind of environment. We have to wake up to that. But that does not mean the end of a harvest. The examples of Saul and Peter help us answer that question. During its first decades of life, the church in Israel faced a culture much more resistant to the gospel than we do. They might have angry mobs gather or an assassination squad plan their execution. And the government provided them no protection. In fact, some leaders joined the persecution if they thought it benefited their careers. This was the culture into which Saul of Tarsus and Peter went to preach. Both men faced a hostile environment, but the way they ministered to it was very different. Their message was the same, but the way they proclaimed it was not. And as we'll see from this portion of Acts, the way the people in that resistant culture responded was also very different. And if we observe them carefully, they will teach us how to reach a changing America. So we're looking at two people and two approaches, particularly right now to Israel, because that's, that's where we are in both situations. We're, or we're dealing with Jews where it, in Damascus and other places, but we're looking at Saul of Tarsus, and I, and I still call him that. Do you know how long he will be as a Christian called Saul of Tarsus? 18 years. Yeah. He did not just change his name. Uh, when, when we get to that place, I'll tell you where, where he changes his name and why I think he did it. But we're saving that for later. So, but we've got Saul of Tarsus over here and the way he ministers. And then over here, we've got Peter and the way he ministers. They are very different. They are very different. And the response is very different. If you've got your Bibles open at Acts 9... I'll just read some of it. I'm, I'm going to really paraphrase it for you. Because I, I want to give you an overview. We're going to basically step back and look at, at Saul, how he ministers and what happens. And then we're going to look at Peter, how he ministers and what happens. Uh, let's, let's just read some of this here. We're in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Saul has just been converted on the road to Damascus. Uh, in verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. I'll show you that pattern happens over and over again. Let's just follow through it. 
When we compare the sequence of events, Paul describes, and I will call him Paul when he's Paul, because he wrote those sequence when he was Paul, and I'll call him Saul when he's Saul. So that's what's going on there. Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians. With those described in Acts, we realize Luke chose to skip over three years of Saul's history. What you have between verse 25 and 26 is three years of history that he's not related. How do I know that? When you go to, when you go to Galatians, he gives you a, a, a rundown of where he went and what happened. So there's, there's, a, there's a gap there of three years. But indeed, he goes from Damascus to Jerusalem, and he does it twice, but I'll show you that. All right. Saul did indeed return to Jerusalem after escaping from Damascus, but on that first occasion stayed there only a short period of time. Here's the scenario as I put it together. Damascus number one, that's the one we just read. Jewish leaders plotted to kill him. There was a plan to capture him when he, when he went in or out of the city gates, but someone warned him and he escaped at night by being lowered through the wall in a basket. Jerusalem won. He went directly from Damascus down to Jerusalem, but now he's alone. He is alone. He's fled at night and, and it's 140 miles, so it's, a, it's several days. He's, he's gone straight down to Jerusalem. He's alone in the city. He can't be seen by any of the religious leaders or he's, he's in trouble. Yeah, he can't be seen by the, the church. Uh, they're terrified of him. He's got no friends. He's, he's really alone. From the glimpse he gives us here in Acts 22, it appears he was alone and facing a very dangerous environment. He had to avoid being seen by religious leaders because of a report of his activities in Damascus had surely reached him, and he had no friends among the church. They were terrified of him. When retelling this moment years later, Paul said he went to the temple to pray, and as he was praying, would you turn to Acts 22. People don't know what to do with this passage, and they paste it all over his life. I do. I don't know why we've missed it. I'll start at verse 17. This is him giving his testimony years later. Uh, he's, he's defending it actually in front of, front of, front of, the, uh, of Israel. And he says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem from Damascus. I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. Can you say slain in the spirit? <laughs> yeah, that's what happened to the guy. He's in the temple. He's newly baptized in the Holy Spirit. This man's in the, in the spirit. Power comes on him and down he goes somewhere. And I saw him being Jesus saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. Would you notice that he argues with Jesus just as did uh, our, our skit? <laughs> and you and me. You can tell it's God because you argue. When you like it too much, it's you. Yeah. Don't, don't take that too far. But. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This was not the Lord calling him to evangelize non-Jews. 
It was an urgent warning to flee to a foreign nation for asylum. There he is in the temple, kind of just all by himself praying. Power hits him down. He goes, sees the Lord. And the Lord says, get out of here and go to a foreign nation. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. All right. Where does he go? Arabia. He tells us that in Galatians. He probably fled south. If he's in Jerusalem and he's heading to Arabia, he went south through the Negev, which is that, if you're in Israel, they've got those, the mountainous hilly region, and then it drops on the south into this, this flat desert land. And it's the, the first part's the Negev. The Negev. And so he, that's where Beersheba and all that. So he's heading south, goes down into the Negev. Across the Arava, the Arava is that rift valley, that great dry valley between the south end of the Dead Sea and, and the north end of the, of the, of the Red Sea. It, he, he crosses that and goes into what was ancient Edom, or even south beyond that, Midian. That whole area is under the control of Arabian tribes that have come up and taken it. They're called the Nabataeans. In fact, all, the whole Negev is. And, and they've come up and taken that. So he's in Arabian country and may have gone right down into what we'd call Saudi Arabia today. Probably the same route Elijah took fleeing from Jezebel. At that time, the term Arabia included not only the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula, but also the areas east and south of Israel. He's, how long is he there? From, from the point he flees Jerusalem... Till the time he comes back, it will be three years. It's a three-year interval. He goes to Arabia. We don't know how long he's there. Uh, I used to think he was just there to, to meditate and reflect. He'd been so shocked by, by the revelation of Christ, he went out there to, in the desert to go you know, study the scriptures. And I'm sure he did, but he was there to hide out. He was there basically to save his life. He was in Arabia and if you, if you go I mean, into what is now Edom and all of that, there's a road that goes right back up to uh, Damascus. It's called the King's Highway. He would have gone back up there. Then he was in Damascus, number two. This is his second time in Damascus. He'll talk about this situation in 2 Corinthians. Don't go there, just read it later. After disappearing for a period of time in Arabia, he returned to Damascus, and there he somehow stirred up the anger of the Nabataean government, that's that Arabian government I mentioned, who controlled the city, or at least the territory around it, again, to escape capture, he was lowered down through the wall in a basket. They kept the basket stored in a room, I'll bet. <laughs> you just never knew when he was going to need it. Do you see a pattern emerging? Everywhere he goes, bold proclamation, scriptural argument, somebody gets angry, and he's fleeing for his life. Tar uh, Jerusalem number two. Now he flees Damascus and heads to Jerusalem again. Three years after fleeing Jerusalem the first time, he returned because he wanted to meet Peter, says so in Galatians. He stayed with Peter for 15 days and also met James, the Lord's brother. The church invited him to join them when they went out to do public ministry. And he soon ended up in heated debates with Hellenistic Jews who again attempted to kill him. Tarsus, to protect his life and probably to avoid rekindling the fires of persecution, the church took him down to Caesarea and Luke says sent him away uh, to his hometown of Tarsus. 
He spent 13 years in that region before Barnabas came up and brought him back to Antioch. If Go back to Acts 9 a minute and look at verse 31. He's only there two weeks plus in Jerusalem, and he's already rekindling the fires of persecution. They're going to have another stoning or a, and a riot. They're, all, they're on their way again. They take, they take, the church takes him by, and just rushes him down uh, to Caesarea, finds a boat headed north, and it says, sends him away. They love him, but it is, bye, go, get out of here before you bring everything down on us. And look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being, you, you, you know, I don't want to put him in a bad light, and I, I deeply honor my, my apostle and yours, uh, and, and we will. I want to say something in a minute about that, but there's no getting around what's being said. Being, they enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. That means grow in numbers. They continued to grow. So without him and his bold proclamation, whatever they were doing worked. And the church was growing and thriving, both spiritually and numerically. All right. As we review this scenario, Saul's pattern of ministry becomes evident. Would you read that out loud with me? Here's his pattern. Bold proclamation, scriptural debate, violence, and fleeing for his life. There you go. That's this, if you go to the, the, the Saul of Tarsus School of Evangelism, that's what he'll teach you. Watching Peter. Now, we're, back to, we're at Acts 9. Right back to back with this, Luke puts, puts, puts this. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Would you look back at your text? Luke now turns his focus back to Peter. And as we watch Peter minister, we discover his approach seems to be centered on divine guidance and healing. I'll show you more. Which in turn opened a door for preaching. This stands in stark contrast to Saul's uh, style at this point in his life. I I would like to say he got entirely away from it. But Saul really never did. When he, even when he became Paul, when he dealt with Jews, he'd go into the synagogue, boldly proclaim, argue with them, get about three of them, and then flee. He'd go out to the Gentiles from whom he expected nothing, didn't argue with them, preach grace, and they just came in by the droves. When Saul is among the Gentile world, there's nobody in his league. He planted the church. He established the church. You and I have a faith soundly founded because of him. So when he's in that zone, he's tremendous. But he, teach, he treats the Gentiles different. But boy, when he's in his own culture, he expects them to know the word, man. And he goes right at him, right at him. Come on, come on. And he's right, and he wins the arguments. And they love him for it. 
Haven't you noticed that those kinds of scriptural arguments are often ego clashes? Who's smarter here? And even when you win the argument, sort of checkmate, they feel beaten, not convinced. He was was repeatedly forced to flee for his life. Peter, on the other hand, and I'll show you more of it, Peter repeatedly gained favor and led whole communities to Christ among the same group of people who would have killed Saul if they could get him in about a week. Aeneas, I'm going to just retell you what, you, what, what I just read to you. Luke's first example of Peter's ministry during this season is the healing of a man named Aeneas. Peter had been systematically visiting churches in all the regions of Israel, meaning Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And in the course of these travels, went down from Jerusalem to a town called Lydda, located on the coastal plain. The first thing he did was to meet with the believers and in the process encountered a man lying on a mattress who had been paralyzed for eight years. In a manner very similar to the healing of the lame man in the temple, Peter spoke authoritatively and commanded healing. He said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Stand up and make your own bed. That's what he says. Because everybody's been taking care of him. He says, come on, stand and make your own bed. And immediately Aeneas stood. Everyone in town, says Luke. And it was a good-sized town, really a small city, with a very conservative Jewish culture. I want to emphasize that. Lydda is ancient Lod. This goes back before the Israelites. It's an ancient city, and it's, it's, it's deeply Jewish. It's about 20 miles to the west of Jerusalem, right on the road to the seaport. It's like an extended suburb. This is not some group of sort of rural folk who don't know what's going on in the big city. This is a very conservative group, and when there were, when there were revolutions against the Romans, this is one of the hotbeds. It's a hotbed of, of, of conservative Jewishness. You got that? And how did they respond to Peter? <laughs> the whole place comes to Christ. Aren't we grateful Peter got there first and not Saul? <laughs> Just think about it. If Saul had come, you know what he'd do, and you'd know what had happened. He'd have gotten four and been running out in a week for his life. Everyone in that conservative Jewish culture saw Aeneas after he was healed, including those in the surrounding region. That means the, the, the plain of Sharon. You've heard of the Rose of Sharon? Okay, this is the agricultural community around there on that coastal plain. The whole area heard of it. And in such communities, people know each other. And everyone would have known Aeneas. They knew he was paralyzed, and they probably knew if it had been caused by a disease or an injury. So when they saw him walking about normally, there was no question in their minds about the validity of the healing. They knew a profound miracle had taken place. And judging from Luke's choice of words, their response was virtually universal. Everyone who saw Aeneas began to call on the name of the Lord. All right. Now look back at your Bible. We're starting at verse 36. I'm going to read down to 43. Here's the next thing Luke reports. Now in Joppa, there was a a disciple named Tabitha, which the word means gazelle, which is translated in Greek 
is called Dorcas, and Dorcas is the Greek word for gazelle. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. It happened that at that time she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body and laid it in an upper room, then they were dead. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Here's Lydda, about 20 miles to the west of Jerusalem. You go another 12 miles to the coast and you get Joppa. Joppa is the seaport for Jerusalem. It's the only thing that has something even resembling a harbor. It's not a great one, but you've got something resembling a harbor there. So it's been the harbor for Jerusalem. So there's people travel back and forth. They know that Peter is in the next town up the road, 12 miles away. And this woman dies. And the way, the way Luke says it is is she died during those days. What days? Well, during the days, Peter's there. So this is a sudden death. This is not the the anticipated death of of a dear old saint who's just stepping across to be with the Lord. Something happened. She fell, she became weakened and died, it says. So something happened to this woman. She's a valuable member of the body, Christ. I mean, not just what she does. They love her dearly. And do you notice she's a seamstress? Uh, I don't know that she's rich, but she, make, she, she, she is making garments for the widows. In that system, there is no social network. There's no structure to catch you. If your husband dies and your family can't take you in, you're, you're, just, you're just left with nothing. And, and so here's this dear woman with probably filling her house. Anything she's got, every room's probably got people in it. And she's taking these widows and she's, she's personally sewing for them clothing. So she's, she, the whole community knows her. They love her. She's, uh, she's, in fact, the, one of the things he'll say later, it sounds like there's not only believers there of widows, but there's unbelievers too. I mean, she, her, her, her graciousness just, just goes to whomever. Great compassionate woman. She dies suddenly and they know that Peter's there. Now it's 12 miles. They send two men. You know they're going to be about 14. Uh, I mean, somebody who can run, somebody who can keep going. And so they send, they're probably going to jog. And even at best, I'm thinking they're making it in about three hours. That's a pretty good pace. That's going like three miles an hour. Uh, that's actually going faster than that. They're, they're re- if that's a real run, three to four hours. And then they get to Peter. And when they arrive at Peter, they come right into him and he's apparently sitting down. And what they say to him is, don't delay here any longer, but come on. You know, in other words, you were coming down, come, continue coming down the road and come all the way to Joppa. Come with us. 
He just must have said, we have a woman, she's died, we need you now. Peter, you know what he did. He, 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 did, he did this. He, 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 Lord, is this you? What are you saying? He's in the middle of ministry. Things are cooking in Lydda. And they're saying, come to Joppa. He processes this and it says he stood up and went with them. So, I mean, he just, he just okay. He, he discerns it and off he goes. Now, Peter is not known for his speed, if you recall. So, the young men may have run well, but Peter is making his way down the road and it's not going to be any three-hour trip with Peter, you, you know, however, whatever. So, at very best... It's eight hours between the point that she dies and the point that Peter arrives. And that's really pushing it. Anybody know the medical situation here? How long does it take for the brain cells to begin dying once, once the heart stops? It's four minutes. <laughs> yeah, so the, this, the brain's rotting, if you want to get into it. Aren't we glad they didn't know that? Uh, so the, 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 she's there. How dead is she? Well, the physician Luke tells you that how dead she was. He said they took her body and they washed it. Now, I'm not going into anything vivid, but when you die, certain things happen. Certain normal processes happen. And it happened to Tabitha. And they washed her body and put her in an upper room. She's dead. Really dead and everybody knows it and yet this church has heard of what Jesus and his disciple Peter and others can do and has the hope in their heart that they could raise this woman isn't that amazing and so he, he, he the two men run Peter comes back he comes into the room what's there room is full of these widows and can you imagine the stir when he walks in? I guess I'm just telling you this, so I'll skip some of that. The stir when he comes in, he comes up the steps and there they are. <gasps> Peter, you know, and he, he, he comes in and everybody starts showing him. They're crying, oh, she's so, we need her, we need her, look at her. And, and they're showing her the, 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 the tunics, the, under, the, the, the dress underneath, and then the cloaks that she's made for them. So all of these women are just, are just their hearts are there. Uh, Peter says, Everybody out. Everybody out. And they all go down. Let's see if I can pick up here. Peter asked everyone to wait outside. And once the room was quiet, he knelt down to pray. We're not told how long he, he remained there, but he took long enough, enough time to prepare himself spiritually and receive instructions as to how to proceed. He had watched Jesus minister in a situation very similar to this when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Capernaum, you recall? And he allowed Peter and John to be with him. So Peter, is little did he know how much he needed to watch that. So he's watching Jesus with a 12-year-old girl who has died. And Jesus, again, put everybody out. Did allow Peter and John to stay. Put everybody out. And then by, let me just, let me replay this a second. There's something beautiful going on. And Jesus went to this little 12-year-old and he took her hand and he said, Talitha kum. In Aramaic, that means, 
you know, they always translate it little girl. You know what a Talitha is? A little lamb. I don't know why they don't translate it. Leave it alone. It's so fabulous. Little lamb, get up. Peter drops to his knees, prepares himself. It's a go. It's a go. The Lord's saying, come on. You can do this. Do it. Turns to her while still on his knees and says, Tabitha, come. She opens her eyes and looks at him. And when she sees him, she sits up. And he comes over and takes her hand, steadies her, helps her a little bit. It's not easy being dead, you know, and stands there with her. She's a little groggy. So he, it, it, Luke pictures it. She's still, he's standing there holding her hand. Kind of, and then he says, everybody, come in. Now you know what that looked like. Those, everybody coming up the stairs and they're going, they, I mean, there was, <laughs> and there was, Those were the men. Yeah. He said, Tabitha, Tabitha, stand up. She opened her eyes, looked at him, and then sat up. She reached out. He reached out his hand, took her hand, undoubtedly to steady her, because the miracle itself had already happened. He wasn't healing her, wasn't raising her. Then Luke uh, called the saints and widows back into the room. They could see her standing beside him, distinguishing Notice Luke distinguishes, he says, the saints and the widows. That's where I get that thing. Uh, He may be indicating this group of widows included unbelievers. Tabitha's generosity may have extended far beyond the boundaries of the church. Word of what happened swept through the city. Again, as had been the case in Lydda, there were so many credible witnesses to this miracle that its validity simply could not be contested. Tabitha had come back to life. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed upon the Lord. 43. The spiritual awakening ignited by this miracle continued long enough to require Peter to make arrangements for his own housing. There must have been a steady flow of people needing hands laid on them for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be water baptized, and of course, they needed to be taught how to be Jesus' disciples, and who better to do this than Peter? So he stayed there until the work was strong enough to carry on without him. The room he found was in the house of a tanner named Simon, whose trade produced terrible smells, and I'm gonna, I'll just leave it there. Maybe I shouldn't, huh? That's, that's not the best place to leave it. All right. Um, in fact, because this type of work required constant contact with the bodies of the dead, a tanner was almost always ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the Jewish community. For, so for Peter to stay in such a place indicates he was already moving away from the constraints of the ceremonial laws found in the law of Moses. He just told you he had, he had to, I don't know if he rented a room, but he had to, he had to, he had to find housing. Why? He's there so long, so many people are coming to Christ, needing to be baptized in the Spirit, water baptized, discipled. He's got so much work on his hands, he sets up shop. Oh, Paul, Paul never needed to arrange housing. <laughs> he just needed a good pair of sandals and a, and a, and a rope and a basket. 
That's what he needed to arrange for. As we watch Peter in Lydda and Joppa, his pattern of ministry also becomes evident. Read this out loud with me. Divine appointment, miracle, explanation. Jesus did this. People movement to Christ, stay in pastor till strong. A word of caution. Before we think Luke somehow intended to put Paul in a bad light, remember he wrote this in Rome while sharing an apartment with Paul? Paul undoubtedly was the one who told his story to Luke who then wrote it down. So Paul is the one humbly exposing his own struggle to reach his people. And he too must have marveled at Peter's effectiveness. Different cultures respond to different methods. Judaism loved Peter. Gentiles loved Paul. And when it came to Gentiles, the tables were turned. It was Paul who had fruit beyond any other apostle. Saul and Peter, without disrespecting the boldness or integrity of our apostle Paul in any way, I think he and Luke, when this book was being written, decided to put these examples side by side so we could learn from them. Saul approached Judaism one way and Peter another. Saul had one type of reaction, Peter another. Among Gentiles, Saul had wonderful fruitfulness, but among his own people, in a culture initially resistant to the gospel, like we're moving into, he had a very predictable response. A few souls and an angry mob. As America changes, Peter shows us how to deal with a hardening culture. His fruitfulness among the same group of people that would have tried to kill Saul was breathtaking. Whole communities of conservative Jews turned to Jesus. But let's remember, Peter didn't develop this style of ministry. He didn't invent a better way. He just continued to do what Jesus did. Now would you turn with me to Matthew 9. Here's here's the point. I want you to get a feel of the way Jesus ministered. Where, where did Peter get this? Let's just, just, I'll just, I'm going quickly, just want to sample it, but I want you to have a feel in, the, in your mind right now, a little background. How did Jesus function? I'll start at verse 18 there in Matthew 9. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter's just died. Come and lay your hand on her, she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering, and you know that this woman stops him. She's got this bleeding. She touches the the, the tassel on his his prayer shawl and, and is healed. And there's this dialogue that goes on. Then verse 23, Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. The girl is dead. This is the morning has started. He said, leave for the, little, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl got up. And I told you the story um, more earlier. This news did what? Say spread throughout all that land. Yeah. Now it goes on. You've got, you've got, you've got Bartimaeus, basically. You've got these blind men. Uh, 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 by the roadside, they're healed. Look at verse 31. They went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Say it, throughout all that land. As they were going, verse 32, 
a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to them and the demon was cast out and the mute man spoke. Crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has been seen in Israel. Pharisees, they're, they're really uh, put out. They say he's doing it by the power of demons. Look at verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I'm back at the text for a minute. What we read here is very similar to what Peter did. Or maybe we should say what Peter did was very similar to what Jesus did. The events and the results are almost interchangeable. You could put Peter in there or you could put Jesus. Do you notice that? You could just swap them in either story. Here's here's the uh, divine appointment, miracle, explanation. In Jesus' case, I did this. People movement to Christ and he moved on. Seeing the harvest. Two people can look at the same situation and come up with two different conclusions. Jesus looked at the people of that day and what did he see? Now, are you still open there at nine? Look at verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What's the condition of the people? Distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What is the condition of America? Distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You can look at the situation and go, oh, it's terrible. It is just terrible. The people are spiritually uh, wandering and purposeless. They have no direction. They are depressed, discouraged, and hopeless. Nothing can happen here. Let's see what Jesus thought of what he saw. Look at the next verse. Matthew 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Now look, look back at your text. It says they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Many were sick and demonized, depressed and discouraged, wandering through life with no direction. And when we look at the culture of America today, we see the same things. Seeing so many troubled people, it would be natural to assume this is hard ground. Nobody's going to come to Jesus here. But if we look at it through Jesus' eyes, the situation is exactly the opposite. He looked at that troubled culture and said, look at that plentiful harvest. So many desperate people. There aren't nearly enough workers to reach them all. You you hearing this? And then he sent out some workers and listened to what he told them to do. You're still there? Look at 10.1. He summoned the 12, gave them authority to do what? over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Look at verse eight or verse seven. And he says, as you go preaching, say the kingdom of God, heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Peter was just still doing that years later. Just doing what he'd been told to do doing what he saw to do, ministering to that culture the way his master had shown him how to do. Felt needs and spiritual needs. 
Jesus showed us how to reach a hostile culture. Hostility to God actually produces distressed, dispirited, spiritually leaderless people. Farther away from God you get, the depresseder you get, the less direction you have, the more discouraged your people will be, and they are. The, the meaner we get toward God, the lower we're going in terms of our personal life. You see it? It's happening. Jesus generally started with the needs people knew they had, and then after they saw God meet those needs, their heart might open to talk about their spiritual needs. Observation. Saul confronted people with the truth and then argued from Scripture to prove his point. And he would win the argument. But that didn't mean he won the person. Is there, is there a place for this type of confrontation? Yes, but it frankly should be used carefully because it will glean a few souls who are ready to hear, but it leaves many angry. When I was pastoring in Arizona, we were two blocks from Arizona State University. And uh, it's at 50, I don't know what it is now. It was 55,000 students then. And it, so it's a large university. And we weren't too far from an area, a quad area. And with some regularity, people would take it upon themselves to go into the quad and, and to stand on a table or one of the, one of the cement uh, planters there and all and preach to the students. And, you know, they'd rail on them. You're going to hell. You're not, you know, you're sinning. Now, there was a number of us ministries around the campus. And I can't tell you how pleased we were to have this uh, help come. <laughs> they meant well. They're teaching the truth. I mean, it's true what they say. But do you, can you guess what the response of the students was? If they paid any attention to them at all, because they got, they actually grew uh, immune to it because it was so consistent. They would just ignore them like it was a fly on the wall. That actually got pathetic. But you, all you get is the, the arguments or the, you know, you know, just the response. Didn't work at all. See, this is what, if you look at America and you go back in our past, we had this Christian culture. We had this Christian assumption. So most people in their own minds are backslidden Christians. And you can come at them with that kind of thing and they'll feel guilty and they'll go back to the religion they were raised in. They'll go back to their faith as, a, as children or the faith of their parents. That's good. That's a good thing. But you don't have that now. You have some pockets of it, but not much. Most people haven't been raised in any kind of religion. They don't have a background to go back to. They don't have a frame of reference. So all they hear is angry judgmentalism and harshness. That's all they hear. You just tick them off. And you can show them in the Bible they're going to hell. That doesn't make them pleased. That just makes them mad at you. They just wish you were out of there. See, how are we? How are you? How am I going to approach our culture? How do we, our neighbors, our family, people we live with, this, don't make this big general. The people you and I are living around. And I'll tell you, here in Washington, we're right out there in terms of secularization. We are out there on the edge. We're leading the pack in many ways. So here we are living in 
a culture that is not responsive to the gospel in that sense, not responsive to that kind of confrontational approach. They don't like it. So are they hard? Are they lost? Are they hopeless? Peter says, no. You just do it a different way. You do it the way the master taught us to do. You do it his way. It works really, really well. So, so let's say we've got a lot of... Do you, do you know anybody who's depressed? Do you know anyone who isn't? Isn't it almost endemic? Do you know people are sick? Do you know people who don't know what to do with their lives? Do you know anybody who's addicted? Do you know anybody who isn't? When you look at our society, you see the dispirited, distressed, and purposeless, aimless people. Do you not? Now you can look at that and go, what a hopeless mess. Walked away from God. Or with Jesus' eyes, you look at it and go, oh, there are not enough people, man. There's so many people out here that need you know, to reach. Well, we don't have enough workers. Jesus saw a harvest. Do you see hard ground or a harvest? The more troubled they are, the more weary they are, the more tired of the world they are, the more they're up to here with their own sins and failure, the riper they are for the power and love of God when it's brought in the right way. I, was in, I spoke at a church this weekend in the area, and, and they got an, they've heard my series on depression. So they, they had an altar call at the end. I didn't, I didn't even preach on that. They, 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 they had an altar call at the end for depressed people. Well, people just flooded forward. And just the weeping and the weariness and the heaviness that's on people. This is in the body of Christ. The world is so ready for the Lord. This is a great time, but it's not a great time for doctrinaire arguing. It is a great time for the love of God and power of God to be breaking into people's lives at their point of need. You follow this? Which, Which requires you and me to have some power. You cannot be a doctrinaire pew sitter. You have got to develop your personal life and walk with God. You've got to be able to hear him when he guides you because it's divine appointments. Amen. And you've got to have the guts to say, can I pray for you? Amen. I, I got more to say here. I just, I got to finish this, but I got something else I want to bring out. All right, so where did I end up? Okay, I ended up somewhere there. Why does it make people... It, it, it'll, it, why does it just not work? I think it because it makes people choose too quickly. And when they choose on the basis of loyal, they choose on the basis of loyalties, personal pride, or even misunderstanding of what was said. It's often a flesh response. When you push them and shove them and demand, it's a flesh response you get. Answered prayer, however, confronts people with God's love and power. Choices are made based on, the, on thankfulness and amazement at the re- reality of God, no one has to argue that Jesus is real anymore. The question now is, for the person, will I surrender to him? And that's a heart issue. It's a heart response. Reaching our culture. So, how will we reach our changing culture? In years past, Saul's approach often worked. People would fall under conviction and come back to God. But in many areas, that spiritual season has passed. Thankfully, the Lord has shown us how to reach a resistant culture like ours. So has Peter. We too need to rely on divine appointments. 
We need to spend time listening to God and letting him guide us. Now, I say that, and I can teach you that. I can tell you you ought to do that. You will agree with me that I ought to do that. But if no one shows you how to do that, you won't do that. That is my experience of 41 years. Not that you don't want to. There's too many pressures against it. I've told you for years to have private times, quiet times, do it. And some of you do. But the issue is you don't know how. The thing that OSL does is it takes you by the hand in a loving but firm way. It's not condemning or anything else, but there's enough accountability, you will do it. And you find yourself over the course of of those four weeks, you find yourself actually learning to have a sweet time with God in the mornings. Not just, oh yeah, I read my Bible today. I did, my, I, I did my prayer list. That's just like taking out the garbage. I mean, it's just one more chore. It's got to become sweet. Why? You got to hear him. One, one, of the, one of the old timers in this church, he's not much older than me, but old timers. <laughs> he was here when I got here. He said the other day, he said, he, 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 he went through OSL. I was, I was pleased and, and, and amazed. And he said, you know, I've been going through life like I had one foot nailed to the floor. And uh, he says, I don't have any direction. He said, I'm just, and, and he says, he says, now I'm having this sweet time with the Lord. And he says, I go through the day. And I kind of have these warm feelings of his presence on me, you know. And, uh, and he says, I was talking to my neighbor. And, you know, my neighbor's kind of troubled and all this. And, he's, and, and, he's, and, he's, and my neighbor said, well, he said I had an encounter with God and my neighbor said well, well what happened and he said I'm a little, little embarrassed to tell you he says no no tell me what, what happened he says he hugged me <laughs> and his neighbor says God hugged you <laughs> yeah said, what did it feel like <laughs> he says well you know it's kind of like if you just touched you around like that mm-hmm. oh. he did that Guy was in church next, next week. Look, well, I want you to see something. That when you were led by, with, with divine appointments, when you're starting to respond, and you, I mean, what, what are you doing? You're training your ear. You're training your heart. You've got to get soft in his presence. This can't be theory. You've got to have a relationship. And nobody can do that for you but you, and it needs to be in the morning. Amen. Which means some of you may have to go to bed earlier. But you can't go without sleep. But you've got to have time. And you've got to tenderize and sweeten up in the morning with him. And then, then just listen. And watch what happens. Stuff starts happening. And you, listen, I want to comfort you. You don't have to raise the dead. <laughs> There's no saying you might not. But you don't have to. You say, oh, Peter raised the dead for heaven's sakes. Of course that caused a stir. I want you to know something. Every form of answered prayer causes a stir. Somebody who's not had a job in years and you, and you say, can I just, would you let me pray with you? I'm just, I, Jesus loves you, man. And he's a prayer answering God. And, and I, I just want to just believe with you that God will give you that prayer. And then the next day they get the call, you might as well raise the dead. That person is so convinced God, like I said, oh man, God's real. See, you have a very different conversation now, don't you? Now you're going, no, Jesus did that. He did that. Can he? 
And now you're not, you're, you're not arguing doctrine. You're explaining a real God who they've just seen do something wonderful. And they know he loves them. This is the model for a hard, dispirited, distressed, directionless population. And you wade into this and you got, there are so many needy people so ready to respond to that that we just don't have enough workers. How does it work? Peter wades in. Whole communities are coming to Jesus with that approach. This is a great time. Look around. The harvest is ripe. Would you stand with me? Are you willing to be that person? See, see, where do we start in this process? It's not a matter of what you do to somebody else. It's a matter of getting you ready and getting me ready. Will I take the time? Will I tenderize? Why are we going through the book of Acts? To see the early church, to see your forefathers and mothers, to see what they did, how they functioned, because it sure worked. Not, not, not for interest's sake, but so that we can imitate their faith. So we can function like they did. So we can, we can see the kind of life and power they had. It's, a, it's, so, it's an intimate relationship-based group. It's full of the presence and expectation of the Holy Spirit. This is the people that we're from. This is who we are. It's why you call yourself a Pentecostal. It's because we go back to Pentecost. This group, aren't they lovely? Wouldn't you give anything to be in Joppa when Tabitha comes up? What a... And then just, it, Luke says that the word went through the town like a wave. It started in the center and went outward through <laughs> the town like a wave. It just, like a shock wave went through the city. That's fun. I, mean, I like that kind of religion. I can do that. Just don't make me sit in a pew and sing three hymns and, and listen to a boring preacher like me. You, that's, you don't want that. But boy, you give me that kind of religion where, I'm, where, I've got, where I've got a living God and he's guiding me and I'm seeing stuff happen. That is fun. Amen. That is really fun. Father God, this, evening, this, this morning, we receive the, your precious grace as, as, as our our apostles, both of them, Saul graciously, Paul, showing his own approach. Peter, being so much like you, Jesus, you practically changed the names. We want our name there too. We want our name right where Peter's is. We want to be like you too, Jesus. Would you guide us? Would you draw us deep? Would you give every one of us a genuine daily walk with you? Opening our ears, divine appointments, miracles, and explanation. Empower us, Lord. We open our eyes and we see a culture around us ripe for harvest, needy, broken, troubled people waiting for the love of God and the power of God, not for a doctrinal argument. Grace us, O God. Grace us, O oh God, to be such people, New Testament people, to follow their, their, their footsteps in this season, in this place. And we thank you for putting us here, now. This is our territory.
This is our calling. This is our years. And we choose to live them well. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' powerful name we pray it. If you agree with me, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.